Question 10, Part 2 of Summa Theologica Secunda Secunde, Treatise on the Theological Virtues, The Virtue of Faith. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Summa Theologica Secunda Secunde, Treatise on the Theological Virtues, The Virtue of Faith. By St. Thomas Aquinas, translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province. Question 10 of Unbelief in General in Twelve Articles. Part 2, Articles 7 through 12. Seventh Article Whether One Ought to Dispute with Unbelievers in Public. Objection 1 it would seem that one ought not to dispute with unbelievers in public. For the Apostle says in Second Timothy 2.14, Contend not in words, for it is to no profit, but to the subverting of the hearers. But it is impossible to dispute with unbelievers publicly without contending in words. Therefore, one ought not to dispute publicly with unbelievers. Objection to. Further, the law of Martianus Augustus, confirmed by the canons, expresses itself thus. It is an insult to the judgment of the most religious synod, if anyone ventures to debate or dispute in public about matters which have once been judged and disposed of. Now all matters of faith have been decided by the holy councils. Therefore, it is an insult to the councils, and consequently a grave sin to presume to dispute in public about matters of faith. Objection 3. Further, disputations are conducted by means of arguments. But an argument is a reason in settlement of a dubious matter. Whereas things that are of faith, being most certain, ought not to be a matter of doubt. Therefore, one ought not to dispute in public about matters of faith. On the contrary, it is written in Acts 9.22 and 29 that Saul increased much more in strength and confounded the Jews, and that he spoke to the Gentiles and disputed with the Greeks. I answer that, in disputing about the faith, two things must be observed, one on the part of the disputant, the other on the part of his hearers. On the part of the disputant, we must consider his intention. For if he were to dispute as though he had doubts about the faith, and did not hold the truth of faith for certain, and as though he intended to probe it with arguments, without doubt he would sin, as being doubtful of the faith and an unbeliever. On the other hand, it is praiseworthy to dispute about the faith in order to confute errors, or for practice. On the part of the hearers, 
we must consider whether those who hear the disputation are instructed and firm in the faith or simple and wavering as to those who are well instructed and firm in the faith there can be no danger in disputing about the faith in their presence but as to simple-minded people we must make a distinction because either they are provoked and molested by unbelievers for instance jews or heretics or pagans who strive to corrupt the faith in them or else they are not subject to provocation in this matter as in those countries where there are no unbelievers in the first case it is necessary to dispute in public about the faith provided there be those who are equal and adapted to the task of confuting errors since in this way simple people are strengthened in the faith and unbelievers are deprived of the opportunity to deceive while if those who ought to withstand the perverters of the truth of faith were silent this would tend to strengthen error hence gregory says in the shepherd two four even as a thoughtless speech gives rise to error so does an indiscreet silence leave those in error who might have been instructed on the other hand in the second case it is dangerous to dispute in public about the faith in the presence of simple people whose faith for this very reason is more firm that they have never heard anything differing from what they believe hence it is not expedient for them to hear what unbelievers have to say against the faith reply to objection one the apostle does not entirely forbid disputations but such as are inordinate and consist of contentious words rather than of sound speeches reply to objection two that law forbade those public disputations about the faith which arise from doubting the faith but not those which are for the safeguarding thereof reply to objection three one ought to dispute about matters of faith not as though one doubted about them but in order to make the truth known and to confute errors for in order to confirm the faith it is necessary sometimes to dispute with unbelievers sometimes by defending the faith according to first peter three fifteen being ready always to satisfy every one that asketh you a reason of that hope and faith which is in you or in the vulgate of that hope which is in you saint thomas's reading is apparently taken from bede sometimes again it is necessary in order to convince those who are in error according to titus one nine that he may be able to exhort in sound doctrine and to convince the gainsayers eighth article whether unbelievers ought to be compelled to the faith objection one it would seem that unbelievers ought by no means to be compelled to the faith for it is written in matthew thirteen twenty eight that the servants of the householder 
in whose field cockle had been sown asked him wilt thou that we go and gather it up and that he answered no lest perhaps gathering up the cockle you root up the wheat also together with it on which passage chrysostom says in his homily one hundred and fifty six on the gospel of matthew our lord says this so as to forbid the slaying of men for it is not right to slay heretics because if you do you will necessarily slay many innocent persons therefore it seems that for the same reason unbelievers ought not to be compelled to the faith objection to further we read in the decretals in the canon on the jews the holy synod prescribes with regard to the jews that for the future none are to be compelled to believe therefore in like manner neither should unbelievers be compelled to the faith objection three further augustine says in tract twenty six on the gospel of john that it is possible for a man to do other things against his will but he cannot believe unless he is willing therefore it seems that unbelievers ought not to be compelled to the faith objection four it is said in god's person in ezekiel eighteen thirty two and in ezekiel thirty three eleven i desire not the death of the sinner now we ought to conform our will to the divine will as stated above in pars prima secundae question nineteen articles nine and ten therefore we should not even wish unbelievers to be put to death on the contrary it is written in luke fourteen twenty three go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in now men enter into the house of god that is into holy church by faith therefore some ought to be compelled to the faith i answer that among unbelievers there are some who have never received the faith such as the heathens and the jews and these are by no means to be compelled to the faith in order that they may believe because to believe depends on the will nevertheless they should be compelled by the faithful if it be possible to do so so that they do not hinder the faith by their blasphemies or by their evil persuasions or even by their open persecutions it is for this reason that christ's faithful often wage war with unbelievers not indeed for the purpose of forcing them to believe because even if they were to conquer them and take them prisoners they should still leave them free to believe if they will but in order to prevent them from hindering the faith of christ on the other hand there are unbelievers who at some time have accepted the faith and professed it such as heretics and all apostates 
such should be submitted even to bodily compulsion, that they may fulfill what they have promised and hold what they at one time received. Reply to Objection 1. Some have understood the authority quoted to forbid not the excommunication, but the slaying of heretics, as appears from the words of Chrysostom. Augustine, too, says in his letter 93 to Vincentius of himself, It was once my opinion that none should be compelled to union with Christ, that we should deal in words and fight with arguments. However, this opinion of mine is undone, not by words of contradiction, but by convincing examples. Because fear of the law was so profitable that many say, Thanks be to the Lord who has broken our chains asunder. Accordingly, the meaning of our Lord's words, Suffer both to grow until the harvest, must be gathered from those which precede, lest, perhaps, gathering up the cockle, you root the wheat also together with it. For Augustine says in his letter against Parmenian, 3.2, These words show that when this is not to be feared, that is to say, when a man's crime is so publicly known and so hateful to all that he has no defenders, or none such as might cause a schism, the severity of discipline should not slacken. Reply to Objection 2 Those Jews who have in no way received the faith ought not by no means to be compelled to the faith. If, however, they have received it, they ought to be compelled to keep it, as is stated in the same chapter. Reply to Objection 3. Just as taking a vow is a matter of will, and keeping a vow a matter of obligation, so acceptance of the faith is a matter of the will, whereas keeping the faith, when once one has received it, is a matter of obligation. Wherefore heretics should be compelled to keep the faith. Thus Augustine says to the Count Boniface in his letter 185. What do these people mean by crying out continually? We may believe or not believe just as we choose. Whom did Christ compel? They should remember that Christ at first compelled Paul and afterwards taught him. Reply to Objection 4 as Augustine says in the same letter, None of us wishes any heretic to perish. But the house of David did not deserve to have peace unless his son Absalom had been killed in the war which he had raised against his father. Thus, if the Catholic Church gathers together some of the perdition of others, she heals the sorrow of her maternal heart by the delivery of so many nations. Ninth article. Whether it is lawful to communicate with unbelievers. Objection 1. It would seem that it is lawful to communicate with unbelievers. 
for the apostle says in first corinthians ten twenty seven if any of them that believe not invite you and you be willing to go eat of anything that is set before you and chrysostom says in his homily twenty five on the letter to the hebrews if you wish to go to dine with pagans we permit it without any reservation now to sit at table with anyone is to communicate with him therefore it is lawful to communicate with unbelievers objection to further the apostle says in first corinthians five twelve what have i to do to judge them that are without now unbelievers are without when therefore the church forbids the faithful to communicate with certain people it seems that they ought not to be forbidden to communicate with unbelievers objection three further a master cannot employ his servant unless he communicate with him at least by word since the master moves his servant by command now christians can have unbelievers either jews or pagans or saracens for servants therefore they can lawfully communicate with them on the contrary it is written in deuteronomy seven two and three thou shalt make no league with them nor show mercy to them neither shalt thou make marriages with them and a gloss on leviticus fifteen nineteen the woman who at the return of the month etc says it is so necessary to shun idolatry that we should not come in touch with idolaters or their disciples nor have any dealings with them i answer that communication with a particular person is forbidden to the faithful in two ways first as a punishment of the person with whom they are forbidden to communicate secondly for the safety of those who are forbidden to communicate with others both motives can be gathered from the apostle's words in first corinthians five six for after he had pronounced sentence of excommunication he adds as his reason know you not that a little leaven corrupts the whole lump and afterwards he adds the reason on the part of the punishment inflicted by the sentence of the church when he says in first corinthians five twelve do not you judge them that are within accordingly in the first way the church does not forbid the faithful to communicate with unbelievers who have not in any way received the christian faith notably with pagans and jews because she has not the right to exercise spiritual judgment over them but only temporal judgment in the case when while dwelling among christians they are guilty of some misdemeanor and are condemned by the faithful to some temporal punishment on the other hand in this way that is as a punishment the church forbids the faithful to communicate with those unbelievers who have forsaken the faith once received either by corrupting the faith as heretics or by entirely renouncing the faith 
as apostates, because the Church pronounces sentence of excommunication on both. With regard to the second way, it seems that one ought to distinguish according to the various conditions of persons, circumstances, and time. For some are firm in the faith, and so it is to be hoped that their communicating with unbelievers will lead to the conversion of the latter rather than to the aversion of the faithful from the faith. These are not to be forbidden to communicate with unbelievers who have not received the faith, such as pagans or Jews, especially if there be some urgent necessity for so doing. But in the case of simple people, and those who are weak in the faith, whose perversion is to be feared as a probable result, they should be forbidden to communicate with unbelievers, and especially to be on very familiar terms with them, or to communicate with them without necessity. This suffices for the reply to the first objection. Reply to Objection 2 The Church does not exercise judgment against unbelievers in the point of inflicting spiritual punishment on them. But she does exercise judgment over some of them in the matter of temporal punishment. It is under this head that sometimes the Church, for certain special sins, withdraws the faithful from communication with certain unbelievers. Reply to Objection 3 There is more probability that a servant, who is ruled by his master's commands, will be converted to the faith of his master, who is a believer, than if the case were the reverse. And so the faithful are not forbidden to have unbelieving servants. If, however, the master were in danger, through communicating with such a servant, he should send him away, according to our Lord's command, in Matthew 18.8. If thy foot scandalize thee, cut it off, and cast it from thee. With regard to the argument in the contrary, translator's note, the Leonine edition gives this solution before the reply to objection to. Since the reply is that the Lord gave this command in reference to those nations into whose territory the Jews were about to enter. For the latter were inclined to idolatry, so that it was to be feared, lest, through frequent dealings with those nations, they should be estranged from the faith. Hence, the text goes on, in Deuteronomy 7.4, For she will turn away thy son from following me. Tenth article. Whether unbelievers may have authority or dominion over the faithful. Objection 1. It would seem that unbelievers may have authority or dominion over the faithful. For the Apostle says in 1 Timothy 6.1, Whosoever are servants under the yoke, let them count their masters worthy of all honor. And it is clear that he is speaking of unbelievers, since he adds in 1 Timothy 6.2, But they that have believing masters, let them not despise them. Moreover, it is written 
in first peter 2:18 servants be subject to your masters with all fear not only to the good and gentle but also to the froward now this command would not be contained in the apostolic teaching unless unbelievers could have authority over the faithful therefore it seems that unbelievers can have authority over the faithful objection to further all the members of a prince's household are his subjects now some of the faithful were members of unbelieving princes households for we read in the epistle to the philippians 4:22 all the saints salute you especially they that are of caesar's household referring to nero who is an unbeliever therefore unbelievers can have authority over the faithful objection 3 further according to the philosopher in politics 1 2 a slave is his master's instrument in matters concerning everyday life as a craftsman laborer is his instrument in matters concerning the workings of his art now in such matters a believer can be subject to an unbeliever for he may work on an unbeliever's farm therefore unbelievers may have authority over the faithful even as to dominion on the contrary those who are in authority can pronounce judgment on those over whom they are placed but unbelievers cannot pronounce judgment on the faithful for the apostle says in first corinthians 6 1 dare any of you having a matter against another go to be judged before the unjust that is unbelievers and not before the saints therefore it seems that unbelievers cannot have authority over the faithful i answer that that this question may be considered in two ways first we may speak of dominion or authority of unbelievers over the faithful as of a thing to be established for the first time this ought by no means to be allowed since it would provoke scandal and endanger the faith for subjects are easily influenced by their superiors to comply with their commands unless the subjects are of great virtue moreover unbelievers hold the faith in contempt if they see the faithful fall away hence the apostle forbade the faithful to go to law before an unbelieving judge and so the church altogether forbids unbelievers to acquire dominion over believers or to have authority over them in any capacity whatever secondly we may speak of dominion or authority as already in force and here we must observe that dominion and authority are institutions of human law while the distinction between faithful and unbelievers arises from the divine law now the divine law which is the law of grace does not do away with human law which is the law of natural reason 
wherefore the distinction between faithful and unbelievers considered in itself does not do away with dominion and authority of unbelievers over the faithful nevertheless this right of dominion or authority can be justly done away with by the sentence or ordination of the church who has the authority of god since unbelievers in virtue of their unbelief deserve to forfeit their power over the faithful who are converted into children of god this the church does sometimes and sometimes not for among those unbelievers who are subject even in temporal matters to the church and her members the church made the law that if the slave of a jew became a christian he should forthwith receive his freedom without paying any price if he should be a vernaculus that is born in slavery and likewise if when yet an unbeliever he had been bought for his service if however he had been bought for sale then he should be offered for sale within three months nor does the church harm them in this because since those jews themselves are subject to the church she can dispose of their possessions even as secular princes have enacted many laws to be observed by their subjects in favor of liberty on the other hand the church has not applied the above law to those unbelievers who are not subject to her or her members in temporal matters although she has the right to do so and this in order to avoid scandal for as our lord showed in matthew seventeen verses twenty five and twenty six that he could be excused from paying the tribute because the children are free yet he ordered the tribute to be paid in order to avoid giving scandal thus paul too after saying that servants should honor their masters adds lest the name of the lord and his doctrine be blasphemed this suffices for the reply to the first objection reply to objection two the authority of caesar preceded the distinction of faithful from unbelievers hence it was not cancelled by the conversion of some to the faith moreover it was a good thing that there should be a few of the faithful in the emperor's household that they might defend the rest of the faithful thus the blessed sebastian encouraged those whom he saw faltering under torture and the while remained hidden under the military cloak in the palace of diocletian reply to objection three slaves are subject to their masters for their whole lifetime and are subject to their overseers in everything whereas the craftsman's laborer is subject to him for certain special works hence it would be more dangerous for unbelievers to have dominion or authority over the faithful than that they should be allowed to employ them in some craft wherefore the church permits christians to work on the land of jews because this does not entail their living together with them thus solomon besought the king of tyre to send master workmen to hew the trees 
as related in third kings five six yet if there be reason to fear that the faithful will be perverted by such communications and dealings they should be absolutely forbidden eleventh article whether the rights of unbelievers ought to be tolerated objection one it would seem that the rights of unbelievers ought not to be tolerated for it is evident that unbelievers sin in observing their rights and not to prevent a sin when one can seems to imply consent therein as a gloss observes on romans one thirty two not only they that do them but they also that consent to them that do them therefore it is a sin to tolerate their rights objection to further the rights of the jews are compared to idolatry because a gloss on galatians five one be not held again under the yoke of bondage says the bondage of that law was not lighter than that of idolatry but it would not be allowable for anyone to observe the rites of idolatry in fact christian princes at first caused the temples of idols to be closed and afterwards to be destroyed as augustine relates in on the city of god eighteen fifty four therefore it follows that even the rites of jews ought not to be tolerated objection three further unbelief is the greatest of sins as stated above in article three now other sins such as adultery theft and the like are not tolerated but are punishable by law therefore neither ought the rights of unbelievers to be tolerated on the contrary gregory says in the register of letters eleven fifteen speaking of the jews they should be allowed to observe all their feasts just as hitherto they and their fathers have for ages observed them i answer that human government is derived from the divine government and should imitate it now although god is all-powerful and supremely good nevertheless he allows certain evils to take place in the universe which he might prevent lest without them greater goods might be forfeited or greater evils ensue accordingly in human government also those who are in authority rightly tolerate certain evils lest certain goods be lost or certain greater evils be incurred thus augustine says in on order two four if you do away with harlots the world will be convulsed with lust hence though unbelievers sin in their rights they may be tolerated either on account of some good that ensues therefrom or because of some evil avoided thus from the fact that the jews observe their rights which of old foreshadowed the truth of the faith which we hold there follows this good that our very enemies bear witness to our faith 
and that our faith is represented in a figure, so to speak. For this reason, they are tolerated in the observance of their rites. On the other hand, the rites of other unbelievers, which are neither truthful nor profitable, are by no means to be tolerated, except perchance in order to avoid an evil, for example, the scandal or disturbance that might ensue, or some hindrance to the salvation of those who, if they were unmolested, might gradually be converted to the faith. For this reason the church at times has tolerated the rites even of heretics and pagans when unbelievers were very numerous. This suffices for the replies to the objections. Twelfth article. Whether the children of Jews and other unbelievers ought to be baptized against their parents' will. Objection 1. It would seem that the children of Jews and of other unbelievers ought to be baptized against their parents' will. For the bond of marriage is stronger than the right of parental authority over children, since the right of parental authority can be made to cease when a son is set at liberty, whereas the marriage bond cannot be severed by man, according to Matthew 19.6. What God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. And yet, the marriage bond is broken on account of unbelief. For the Apostle says in 1 Corinthians 7.15, If the unbeliever depart, let him depart. For a brother or sister is not under servitude in such cases. And a canon, the canon uxor legitima, and idolatria says that if the unbelieving partner is unwilling to abide with the other without insult to their creator then the other partner is not bound to cohabitation much more therefore does unbelief abrogate the right of unbelieving parents authority over their children and consequently their children may be baptized against their parents will Objection to. Further, one is more bound to succor a man who is in danger of everlasting death than one who is in danger of temporal death. Now, it would be a sin if one saw a man in danger of temporal death and failed to go to his aid. Since then, the children of Jews and other unbelievers are in danger of everlasting death, should they be left to their parents? who would imbue them with their unbelief, it seems that they ought to be taken away from them and baptized and instructed in the faith. Objection 3. Further, the children of a bondsman are themselves bondsmen and under the power of his master. Now the Jews are bondsmen of kings and princes, therefore their children are also Consequently, kings and princes have the power to do what they will with Jewish children. Therefore, no injustice is committed if they baptize them against their parents' wishes. Objection 4. Further, 
every man belongs more to god from whom he has his soul than to his carnal father from whom he has his body therefore it is not unjust if jewish children be taken away from their parents and consecrated to god in baptism objection five further baptism avails for salvation more than preaching does since baptism removes forthwith the stain of sin and the debt of punishment and opens the gate of heaven now if danger ensue through not preaching it is imputed to him who omitted to preach according to the words of ezekiel thirty three six about the man who sees the sword coming and sounds not the trumpet much more therefore if jewish children are lost through not being baptized are they accounted guilty of sin who could have baptized them and did not on the contrary injustice should be done to no man now it would be an injustice to jews if their children were to be baptized against their will since they would lose the rights of parental authority over their children as soon as these were christians therefore these should not be baptized against their parents will i answer that the custom of the church has very great authority and ought to be jealously observed in all things since the very doctrine of catholic doctors derives its authority from the church hence we ought to abide by the authority of the church rather than by that of an augustine or a jerome or of any doctor whatever now it was never the custom of the church to baptize the children of the jews against the will of their parents although at times past there have been many very powerful catholic princes like constantine and theodosius with whom most holy bishops have been on most friendly terms as sylvester with constantine and ambrose with theodosius who would certainly have not failed to obtain this favor from them if it had been at all reasonable it seems therefore hazardous to repeat this assertion that the children of jews should be baptized against their parents wishes in contradiction to the church's custom observed hitherto there are two reasons for this custom one is on account of the danger to the faith for children baptized before coming to the use of reason afterwards when they come to perfect age might easily be persuaded by their parents to renounce what they had unknowingly embraced and this would be detrimental to the faith the other reason is that it is against natural justice for a child is by nature part of its father thus at first it is not distinct from its parents as to its body so long as it is enfolded within its mother's womb and later on after birth and before it has the use of its free will it is enfolded in the care of its parents which is like a spiritual womb for so long as man has not the use of reason he differs not from an irrational animal so that even as an ox or a horse belongs to someone who according to the civil law 
can use them when he likes, as his own instrument, so, according to the natural law, a son, before coming to the use of reason, is under his father's care. It would be contrary to natural justice if a child, before coming to the use of reason, were to be taken away from its parents' custody, or anything done to it against its parents' wishes. As soon, however, as it begins to have the use of its free will, it begins to belong to itself, and is able to look after itself in matters concerning the divine or the natural law, and then it should be induced, not by compulsion but by persuasion, to embrace the faith. It can then consent to the faith and be baptized, even against its parents' wish, but not before it comes to the use of reason. Hence it is said of the children of the fathers of old that they were saved in the faith of their parents, whereby we are given to understand that it is the parents' duty to look after the salvation of their children, especially before they come to the use of reason. Reply to Objection 1. In the marriage bond, both husband and wife have the use of the free will, and each can assent to the faith without the other's consent. But this does not apply to a child before it comes to the use of reason. Yet the comparison holds good after the child has come to the use of reason, if it is willing to be converted. Reply to Objection 2. No one should be snatched from natural death against the order of civil law. For instance, if a man were condemned by the judge to temporal death, nobody ought to rescue him by violence. Hence no one ought to break the order of the natural law, whereby a child is in the custody of its father in order to rescue it from the danger of everlasting death. Reply to Objection 3. Jews are bondsmen of princes by civil bondage, which does not exclude the order of natural or divine law. Reply to Objection 4. Man is directed to God by his reason, whereby he can know him. Hence a child, before coming to the use of reason, in the natural order of things, is directed to God by his parents' reason under whose care it lies by nature. And it is for them to dispose of the child in all matters relating to God. Reply to Objection 5. The peril that ensues from the omission of preaching threatens only those who are entrusted with the duty of preaching. Hence it had already been said in Ezekiel 3.17. I have made thee a watchman to the children of Israel. Or the Vulgate translation says, House of Israel. On the other hand, to provide the sacraments of salvation for the children of unbelievers is the duty of their parents. Hence it is they whom the danger threatens if through being deprived of the sacraments their children fail to obtain salvation. End of question 10. Read by Michael Shane Craig Lambert, L.C.